This week on the show, we are delighted to be joined by a commercial um, still life photographer, Mitch Payne, who's coming to us direct from his studio in a bunker somewhere in East London. Mitch, where, where, whereabouts, uh, whereabouts are you based? Because that studio looks wicked. Residing in uh, Hackneywick. Hackneywick. You uh, trendy bastard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been there? Uh, in here in the second lockdown, so must be going okay. off two years now, coming up to three. How um, you finding it? Nice. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, formerly part of the um the Bromley by Bow uh, squad, it was horrible down there. I must admit, I um I had a, we had a lovely studio set up, loads of lovely neighbours in our block, but we were based inside of a concrete plant, which um yeah didn't have oh. too much going on around. Was that uh, by the Bow Bunker? Yeah, by yeah. yeah. But that was a cool. I um, so if I'm right, I think Peru used Peru to own the place. Yeah. That is it, right? Okay, I shot there a few times. I, I really liked it. I never got to see inside the bunker, but from the outside, it looked incredible. Yeah, mm. it was. A, it was a cool. It was a cool little studio. I, I, is it still there? I don't know if it's. I mean, I've gone. been down there for about three years, but he, I think, he had some sort of plan of permission, potentially. Right. So no, now you are Hackney Wick, and you were, were you sharing a studio before? Is this your first solo kind of space? Uh, no, the one in the one in Bow, I was sort of um, desk sharing and, and occasionally sort of sharing the main space. Um, and then before that, in Bethnal Green, with a great bunch of people, and um, in a studio called BJ House, mm. uh, which was. An amazing place to start off with. We had, I think, seven, eight of us sharing that spot. Um, Dan Wilton, Alex Demora, Steph. Um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of us photographers all sort of squeezed into one space, and it was it was a bit of a vibe. We didn't really see one another that much, um, hmm. but it was just a really good spot to sort of you know bounce ideas around and be around other people. It's an interesting thing because ultimately, like, if you went back 20 years, perhaps, in photography, there were a lot more photographers that had studios um, and it was kind of a lot more common. And now, obviously, with just generally the way that people work and uh, the cost of having a studio, um, the cost of real estate, et cetera, in London means that it's kind of rare to find people still um, working out of studios. Obviously, now in your line of work as a still life photographer, it's it's kind of imperative, isn't it? You you need that space to be able to experiment and spend time kind of building your sets and kind of working on creations. Let's yeah, just kind of wind things back a bit and kind of just, I just kind of want to get for the listeners. I mean, obviously if you're, if you're listening now and you want to check out Mitch's work, it's Mitch Payne, which is P A Y N E dot K dot UK. Um, now your, what's your, how did you get into still life photography? What's your kind of, what was your route into it? Did you always know you wanted to specifically get into that genre of photography? Uh, no, not particularly to, to be honest. I didn't even think it was, I, I don't think I ever really realized it was a, a thing or certainly a job. Um, I was actually, I'm, I'm the son of a, a plasterer and my dad's dad was a plasterer. And so I think it was written that I was sort of going to go into the trade, but um, between doing that and some other bits, I worked at a pub, Halfords Garden Centre. Um, was out of school pretty early, so after doing all of those jobs, I ended up going travelling with some friends. And um, during that sort of short time away, just thought, you know what, when I go back, I fancy uni. And photography was just sort of something that I picked 
from a from a list of things that I thought I might be able to <laughs> to achieve. <laughs> As a lot <laughs> of people else, do, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, it just seemed like a, a, an easy choice, if I'm honest. But also, like, I obviously had a, a, an interest in it. I used to um, still try my BMX and used to sort of shoot video and, and, and pictures of that with our mates. And, um, you know, all the usual stuff. I used to take pictures of, like, sheep and stuff from around where I live and wildlife stuff all sorts really but never really as like a as an option as a job so yeah chose photography at uni and I guess sort of during uni experimenting in the studio just ended up doing more still life and realized that um I sort of had a good idea of of light and it sort of went from there and where were you where did you study that that was down in Bournemouth okay Uh, on the commercial photography course is it yeah, I think when I first started, it was called the A AIB, and then it changed to the AUCB. Now it's the AUB, I think. Um, it's had some good alumni come off of that course, actually. Seems one of the amazing. kind of um, good courses for setting people up in in the commercial sector a bit more, a bit more kind of um, practical teaching to some extent. Yeah, as much as you're going to get like, to uni. Yeah, yeah. And and to this day, we, we're all, you're always bumping into people that are from uni or know Bournemouth uni. It's, it's mad to sort of the alumni community from Bournemouth is is massive. Mm. Um, and I guess it's just getting bigger and bigger. I know that students' numbers now in each year is a sort of feel for them because, you know, when we were there, the numbers were growing. But now I think courses are just, they just seem to be getting oversaturated from what I hear. But um, yeah, and mm. either way, great uni. When you came out of uni then, uh, straight into London, and did you go the assisting route, or were you just straight into shooting, or how did that work for you? Um, I was sort of doing a little bit of commercial work whilst at uni, um, bits and bobs, just sort of picking up crumbs. So I, I had a couple of trips to London. There was also a studio um, run by a local magazine from my hometown. Uh, ran by a guy called Ian who helped me out massively and sort of give me a bit of studio space during the sort of summer breaks where we'd do a bit of commercial work, a bit of personal work. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, the the first sort of break to London was um, actually it was it was actually being repped. Uh, Will Will picked me up from Stan and and we had a meeting and it was off the back of a. I think it was off the back of a project I did on chickens. Strangely, I think he. Oh yeah. Yeah, he, I think he saw saw an image and it got his attention, and he and he checked me out. And he, so he asked me up, and we had a meeting, and we got on really well straight from the, the get go. And so yeah, I think he slowly started getting me little bits of editorial, and then more and more. Sort of. I think that's around. maybe where we. I must have first come across your name because I was with STEM for a while, but I think possibly oh, after you. No way, I that's think. amazing. What yeah. was it about yeah, that project? I mean, was it uh, was it because it was excellent, or it was was it because it had legs? This guy. <laughs> <laughs> you Sorry, you will about get Tom, right? You will get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was so, so yeah. So so then so then after that, it was basically just basically straight into commercial work, and then obviously with an agent. Yeah, yeah. So it it was it was a slow burn, but. Um, Greg, I'm sure you had the same same experience, but Will was brilliant at sort of setting up meetings and it, it sort of get you out there as a foot soldier yourself and meeting people. Um, mm. Yeah, proper grafter. 
I probably didn't appreciate the work he was putting, well, I didn't appreciate the work that he was putting in at the time. I know he had a very busy roster. Um, just top bloke got on really well. And, but yeah, it's, um, that was probably the reason why I'm, I'm here today, really. I think he gave me that confidence to sort of... Just well, it's amazing to it. have somebody see so much potential, you know, and, and especially when you're kind of straight out of uni, you don't always understand the kind of market and just have somebody like that which is what a good photo agent should really do is is take somebody on that they see a lot of potential in and, and you know not all photo agents do that but some photo agents are able to then nurture that talent and and help that person kind of develop their their kind of style and their work and their their portfolio and obviously some photo agents would don't want to kind of have um you know have to do that they want to just have somebody who's going to start getting the work whereas some photo agents kind of will spot talent like will obviously did with you and think right this this person's really got something going on here and i can help develop it yeah. do you know what i think it's because i didn't have any experience with agents as well i just assumed that i just went the naivety was that this guy rates my work and he wants me part of the roster you know that was just my, my sort of naive way, of, naive way of thinking and i think for the most part with somebody like will um it is that they're there they're, you're part of like a family on a small roster like that you're you know, it's it, it's everyone works for everybody. Um, but it's the interesting thing about agents when you, especially, I mean, I've had a couple, and you don't really know what their their sort of um, motive is from the start. Do you know what I mean? They could be just getting you on to make money from you. Are they like like you're saying? Are they nurturing your talent? Have they got your mm. interests in mind? Um, and you know, I've got enough enough friends and, and, and peers in with agents, and everyone seems to have a different opinion on what an agent should do for you or can do for you mm -hmm. yeah i think it's just all about expectations at the end of the day isn't it are you currently with someone now no no um so i, I was with um skinny dip with amy there lovely lady um, mm -hmm. i think that's where our uh, mutual friend ben is as well Greg. and um yeah and then to visual artists for for a while um but currently unrepped and do you know what? I think since COVID, um, um, yeah, I always thought I'd never never go down the representation route again. But um, mm -hmm. more and more, I think it's it just seems more and more of a good idea to me at the moment. Um, why? Do you mind me? Obviously, it's probably quite private. Do you mind me probing why no, you're kind of like tempted? Because I, I, again, I'm I'm not repped, and I'm kind of in the in the same boat. I kind of feel like it would be nice. At the same time, I'm kind of like loving not having anyone kind of involved telling me what to do or anything like that so it's i'd be really interested to hear that so for, for me it's um yeah i mean that guidance thing is 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 crucial i think and a lot of times especially in the, in the bigger jobs and things like licensing and all the boring bits i think having somebody backing you especially with a lot of experience is you know, it's beyond helpful mm -hmm. um, but yeah i, I I'm not sure. I think for me, like the the COVID thing was a was a massive um, shift in the way I work. I think pre-COVID, um, maybe I had it easy. It was it was very much sort of word of mouth, um, just being social, just meeting people at parties. Um, you know, it seemed to sort of like one job would come off the back of another job, and then I think from my personal experience, COVID and and the shift around of how companies are working internally. Um, a lot of contacts moved different places, maybe changed changed jobs, didn't they? And, um, I just think there was this big sort of shift, and 
and I'm not the sort of person that likes to sort of sit at a desk, put together like a an email, send out. I'm, I'm not very good at my own promotion, um, which is why I think I've always sort of um, had an agent or, or needed an agent. Mm-hmm. So, so post COVID, now now we've had this big shift around. I think it's a bit of a struggle. You've really got to put graft in yourself. You've got to keep on on top of like where people are at, who people are talking to, working with. Um, and if I'm if I'm honest, maybe it's just because of my my laziness recently. Um, uh, it's it, I don't really want to have to sit down and put together these emails. Like I said, but you've got to do it. Well, it takes Even a lot of focus is. to do it, doesn't it? That's the thing. Like, it takes a lot of focus and time to be doing that. And ultimately, you know, maybe that your strengths lie in the other areas when it comes to... The job, yeah. Yeah, I think if you struggle with that, then, yeah, it certainly takes a serious amount of concentration. I think some people are just are just born to do that sort of thing. But um, I think a lot of us, especially in our sort of line of work, struggle, don't we? So to yeah, I definitely kind of do. Go- I hate I hate it. Yeah, but you're you're very good at doing it, Tom. In terms of kind of being organised and having your systems. Still, still don't enjoy it though. Yeah, yeah. it's still have it's always, like. Have you always done your own? You've always done your own PR, though, Tom. Yeah, always, always. Which is why sometimes you know it's it's always difficult because you you when you're quiet, it's very easy to kind of like find the motivation to kind of do it and sit down and kind of hammer out the emails and kind of try and update you know, social media and stuff like that. And then a couple of jobs come in and then you're like, oh, cool. That's the fun stuff. Shoom. Gone off on do all that. And then I suddenly I'm like, oh, shit, okay, I need to actually go back. Because then as soon as you drop off the jobs finish, you haven't been doing the promotion while you've been doing those jobs. So then you go into another quiet spell, which is kind of, I guess, where the feast and famine kind of comes from a lot of the time. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's I, I, I enjoy parts of it. That's the benefit of having the agent, right? That's sort of ticking over in the background. And But, you know, all that being said, I think having an agent these days seems like a bit of a luxury. It's, um, there's obviously so so much competition out there. Mm-hmm. A lot of people doing very similar things. So maybe, maybe it's just a case that you're just extremely lucky to have an agent these days. Sure. Maybe, maybe. I think there's going to be a thinning... From from the conversations I've kind of had with a lot of people, there is going to be a bit of a thinning out, I think, of the photographers um, kind of in the next maybe 18 months. There's a lot of people I've spoken to this year who are just like, I'm not making the living I was or I'm not making the living I want to make. So I'm going to, you know, I've, I've spoken to kind of probably 10 or 15 this year who are checking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, checking and they're checking out. They're going to go and retrain and just go off and do something else. I think there's also a part of our brains that you know, me and Greg have spoken about this. I can't remember whether it's in private on the podcast, but we're very resilient and adaptable people. So, and also maybe there's a slight bit of ego that we can kind of go off and do anything. So there are a lot of people, uh, well, there's a few people that I know who've checked out and started flipping properties, obviously terrible timing for them, but the, you know, there's, there does seem to hope, not hopefully, but I, I feel like there might be a bit of a thinning out. Yeah, so it's, interesting. It's, it's something that it's something that I've thought about quite a lot. Like you're not supposed to have the same job. My, my dad was a plaster his, his whole life. And mm-hmm. I, I think for the most part, granddad's as well. And uh, so I've always thought that's mad. How can you have that same job for that long? And hmm. you know, it's the saying that time flies. It's crazy that I've been doing my job for for fifteen years or something. Yeah, less than what you guys. But maybe it, it is sort of 
healthy to, to peel off and do a couple of careers within your lifespan. And it's something that I keep saying to myself, but the reality of actually doing it is, is a bit different. Oh, it's, it's it's daunting, isn't it? And also, I you know, I don't know how about you, how you feel. Probably the same, but I I feel like I was genuinely. This is like I feel like I've landed doing what I was meant to do. Yeah, like yeah. I don't I don't really want to go off and do something else, but if I have to, then I will. But like currently at the minute, I'm like having a great time, so I'll just keep going with this as long as I can. I guess that's it. It's knowing, knowing when to sort of to leave it, isn't it? Because you know, do you long it out and just keep keep plugging on or I think there'd be a lot of I think there'd be a lot of younger photographers, Mitch, looking at your work and your setup and everything, and finding it almost like surprising that you're you think you think that, or, but in a in maybe in a refreshing way, maybe in a slightly daunting way for them, because you know to to look at your portfolio from the outside, you've done some amazing work, you've had some insane clients. Like your work is very diverse within still life. You know, you've shot drinks campaigns, you've shot jewelry and watches and also cars and bits of fashion and you know you move doing moving image of saw some amazing animation stuff that you were doing with um drinks brands recently on instagram that looked great you know there's there's a real kind of creative drive behind what you do um so i think that that would that would surprise some people to hear that but I also think that that's a good thing for people to hear because I think it's people need to know that that's a reality that photographers go through however far into their I, career I, they go, you know? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, appreciate what you said as well. But I think I think it's one of those things like, you know, the, the, the saying, like, it's not what it used to be. I think it's whatever you're used to. You, like, when I first started and I was really hungry for it, the, the industry was different. And, you know, I'm, I know I'm only, I'm 35 and I've not been doing it that long, in all fairness, but, you know, if you ask somebody that's 10 years older than me and 10 years older than them, 10 years older than them, everyone will say mm-hmm. how much it's changed. And the, the period of time that I came up um, doing what I was doing, the industry's changed dramatically and it's just a different climate. And I think for those students that you're talking about or, or people just starting out, they're not going to see that. But photography is what it is today and that's just what they're going to have to get used to. Whereas, you know, I'm I'm coming from a more sort of old school perspective and saying, do you know what? It is. It it feels to me like a bit of a struggle at the moment, or not what I'm used to, or um, yeah, I don't know, just a little bit sort of unsettled for me. And and that's the only reason why I'm saying saying that. Like, um, the future's exciting, obviously, and it's and it's good to hustle. It's I'm lucky enough to still be busy. Mm-hmm. Um, but all I'm saying is just, is it healthy that if things are changing, is that your opportunity to just say, fuck it, I'm going to do something a little different? Mm-hmm. Can so, we, can we, sorry, Greg, I am going to talk over you on this one because I feel this is quite an important thing for me personally. Uh, when you look at the website, Mitch, I'll be, I'll be very blunt. I am quite complimentary about some people's work and, you know, quite quiet on others uh but your work is some of the finest i've ever seen as far as like still life goes automotive ways it's the <laughs> cleanest no honestly the the lighting is absolutely stunning uh the coloring is just fantastic it, it's if you're not if you haven't already if you listen to this and haven't already looked at the website please do yourself a favor and go and listen uh, go and watch the look at the website it's just 
incredible uh, as far as it goes. Trump's going to be my agent. Yeah, absolutely, sure. <laughs> I, uh, it's an, only a 95% cut, so, uh, and I will do one meeting a year. So standard these days, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it's honestly, it's such beautiful work. I would love to talk to you about the the technical aspect of it because obviously we've spoken about the uh, you know you obviously have the studio and kind of like my my very loose segue is I guess photographers like yourself have got higher overheads with things like studios and stuff like that. Yes, How gear works. intensive is your work? It looks to me like it would be very gear heavy to get the the kind of the the clean almost surreal natural look it's very odd to to describe it you know what i mean yeah um no i'm the opposite i'm i'm less is more and i think i always have been um my friends take me out of me for you know most of the time using one light um <laughs> just one light with no attachments and then the rest is just sort of mirrors and cards and bits of glass but um really yeah there's certain things obviously when you're shooting like automotive stuff for example is um depending on if you're shooting for the for a brand and everything's got to look a specific way and, and the clients in the room you obviously need to have it in camera and um things like watches as well are a little bit tricky there's a lot more sort of Again, you can get most of the time I'm using one light, but lots of tricks over the years of, of sort of doing it all in or mostly in camera. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, other things like editorial stuff, shoes and, um, you know, soft goods. Yeah, just, just usually a light and a bit of bounce and, and then some sort of lens tricks. is. is so I, th I think, I mean, I know a little bit about light. been doing this a while. Yeah. When you say that, I'm just like, wow, man, that's that's not just like using one light. You're so blasé about it because that's like that's like another level. So can can I can I then talk about your your process a little bit? How much um, planning goes into kind of executing one of these shots? And when you say it's one light, especially on the the automotive stuff, how many? Is that is that like a crazy comp? Is there like three thousand layers and in on that? And are you then retouching your own work? Like how do how do you kind of like to work it? Um, yeah, I've always I've always done my own retouching to a certain degree on on bigger jobs, obviously outsource. But um, yeah, I think it's it's quite an important process that you do your own retouch in order to know how to shoot. Um, mm -hmm. My 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 problem in the past with using um, without sourcing retouch is, is that process of having to explain what it is that you want to be retouched and by the and time it, you've explained it you could have probably you know, maybe well done, done it done yourself it. yeah right and and, I and, hear that. and a lot of the time it comes back i think a lot of um retouchers are, are sort of scared to apply any sort of um atmosphere to an image or, or experiment with it they, they, like retouchers will just do an amazing job but a very sort of straight edge job. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Whereas if you're retouching your own stuff, you can just mess about with it a bit. And you know, a lot of times I think uh, happy accidents happen during the retouch process. Mm -hmm. But but back to your like, obviously, you know, I say one light with things like cars, obviously you can't really have light with um, sure. one light, but um, it, it, there is a lot of plates involved. I think I'm certainly a type of photographer that, that likes to work with plates because it's, 
it's just quicker for the, for the client. It's quick, like it's hard on sets to to get the trust to say, look, we've got it. Trust me, you're looking at one plate here, but we've got it in. We've got this in this plate and this, and they actually come to appreciate that because you can tweak it later in post. Well, also, I guess you know, with the caliber of work you've got on the website, the the convincing probably isn't doesn't take that much because you kind of go, look, this is how I work. Trust me. Look at what yeah. I've got. Look what I do. You You've hired trust, me. Yeah. So yeah, I get I get that. With them um, going to the retouch thing, I've I've had um I've had some I, I do all my own retouching now because I'm well I've I've always done it myself because I'm the same as you. I always like to have control over from start to finish because you shoot a certain way to then do that do certain things. I almost said fix it in post, but that's that's not that's not, that's not what I meant. But the um I've had I don't know if you've ever had this, but I've had when work has maybe been retouched externally or people have taken the retouch in-house, it ends up looking nothing like how I would have wanted it to look. And then I won't share it. You know, I've got something out for a TV channel at the minute and they've done the, they've done the retouch in-house and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's fine what you've done. I'm not pissed, but like, it's nothing like the rest of my work. It's not, I wouldn't put my name to that. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think it's it. It's a it's a great luxury we have, isn't it? Being able to sort of, if you can retouch, to retouch your own work and sort of manage mm-hmm. the whole project and and sort of see it from start to finish how how you'd like it. But it's also no fun sitting in a dark room staring at a screen, is it? So no, um, no, it is not. Especially for like, because I would imagine the retouch on your shots is not like a quick five minute bosh. It's uh, you know probably hours and hours. I, I assume. Hey, do you know what? It all depends how how well you shot it. I guess isn't it? Spend, <laughs> it could be a five minute. How, how in, yeah, how intentional yeah, you are. I guess as well with your shooting. You know, yeah, because you're going in, yeah, going. Exactly. I know exactly yeah. how and I'm going like, to achieve this. Yeah, and going back to the benefit of, of shooting, you shoot. And you retouch, you know, you know, you know what you need. You know what you've got to get shot. You know where the files are. You don't have to do any fancy file naming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, again, what pro retouchers can do is pretty special. So yeah, What's, I mean, they're they're, it... they're very much. We've had a we've had a V on the on the show, and it, what what they can he can do is it's completely <laughs> above the level I could do. But yeah. does my work require that? Often not. So it's interesting. It's too bloody well. Well, you know, <laughs> wouldn't say that personally, but, you know, if you're going to say it. <laughs> so obviously we've talked a little bit about the, the, the kind of the process. Uh, I didn't actually fully kind of let you answer about the, how much like planning goes into the, um, the shots. I would imagine probably quite a lot. Um. Likewise, I mean, yeah, yeah, obviously there's a lot of thought that goes into to certain sort of images and specifically like if the set of images gets bigger, um, if, there's a, if there's a large sort of 12-page editorial, you've obviously got to think how their images are going to look across all of them and not be busy and, mm-hmm. and sorry, not be too boring, um, how they're going to look different. But... Technically speaking, from a from a from a live point of view, I think I tend to just um, just go for it. Do you know what I mean? Just okay. sort of see what see what arrives, see what the stylist has got, see what the set looks like, drop a light on it, um, mm-hmm. 
and just sort of go from there. And then for the ad stuff, as, as you guys know, you know, you've got to sort of, you've got to sort of tell them what you're going to do, put together your light treatment, and then you're sort of given a little less wiggle room. But um, yeah, I think planning wise for me, I probably don't do enough. <laughs> Sure. No, well, I mean, I've, I think that's probably true of a lot of us. So if everyone listening is probably going, yeah, do you know what, Mitch? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so is, we're going back to the gear, because obviously I'm a bit of a gearhead, uh, and I, I'm going to hijack this question from Greg. Um, with the the kind of the gear over the, the years, obviously you've picked up probably things that are your favorite things to use, and you've probably picked up some really weird bits bits of kit. Is, is there anything that you'll use on every single time i know you've talked about like just using a single bare head but like is there anything that you would you'd you know you'd probably really miss if you weren't allowed to use it or if there's if there's like a really weird bit of gear that you've kind of picked mm. up i think when we had art striber on he uh, talked about turkey bags and like just random random stuff like that i can't remember why he wanted turkey bags turkey probably bag. cooked turkey yeah turkey bags i can't as in real-life turkey bags? Yeah, as in real-life turkey bags. But for the life of me, now cannot remember why he liked turkey bags. <laughs> um, the lights. It was a really... It was a, oh, that was it, yeah. It totally made, it totally made sense. Um, but yeah, you know, so I love, what... I, I love the idea of having some really niche tools, um, but unfortunately, my answer is probably pretty bland in, in that I, I don't. I mean, I don't know if you can see uh, that thing that's on my, my ceiling there. If, for listening it's like it's just a scrim um that's a that's it, a two by four two by two skylight right yeah yeah but just having right. it i mean whenever i'm shooting that comes down the camera comes out that comes down you know it's, it, i usually use it on, on on most shoots and another tool that i use a lot is actually just here it's just a wand um you know that sort of oh is that like an 60, ice light 60, yeah yeah so I've, this is actually hell of a lot cheaper than my ice light and a hell of a mm-hmm. lot better oh right um, amazon little amazon ice light uh gets used a lot um but no no not not really any sort of niche tools other than just bits and bobs that i, I put in front of the lens and um strange bits of material i found over the years that sort of bounce light in, in, in specific ways but other than that it's it's pretty much just a just a couple of light heads and some some white cards Nice. Well, that's great. I mean, the, the, with the, no, no turkey bags, that's a shame. With the, uh, so are you a, like a, I, I can see obviously you've got a, what, like a Fresnel on a 600 back there? Uh, yeah, that's um, one of those pictures. Yeah, the 600D, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. Storm, Storm X, something like that. And, you, yeah, and so are you continuous over flash? Uh, both. Right. Okay. That's that's what I really love about these LEDs. Match up to the match up to the flash, and then I, I sort of try and use a bit of both these days. I think okay. during that process of 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 ever, all clients needing moving image and having to use a bit more sort of moving light, um, realize just how easy it is to work with with really bright lights. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. it's not as pleasant. Some would say, I guess. You've not got the flashes going off, but you can see what you're doing. And, and I found like when you're moving lights or someone's moving a light for you, you just catch something or a light will bounce off something. Like, what was that? Like, go, go back and... The, ha- the happy accidents, like, right? Yeah, right. And it just seems to happen all the time with the constant stuff. Do you feel there's like a little bit of magic maybe lost in the way that people can see it coming together 
you know maybe the, maybe the client can see it coming together in front of their eyes as opposed to with flash obviously the flash goes off and then magic just appears <laughs> um, yeah i mean even for myself sometimes the flash would go off and we've done a setup and something will come up and i just sort of have to pretend that that's what i meant to happen um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've all we've all had that. Yeah, I totally meant to bleach everyone's skin out. That's totally, totally normal. That's exactly what I was going for. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There, yeah, there is something I guess kind of kind of interesting about the way that flash works. But I just think from a from an efficient point of view, working with constant light just seems so much quicker and a little bit trickier at times because there's a lot more flagging involved and mm -hmm. a lot less sort of tools that you can put on the end of your lights but um yeah, no, i guess know. also that as a pro that as part of the process has really only become available in the past couple of years because now you've got high output cool running leds right yeah. before you could have you know if you're trying to shoot a lipstick under three four five k HMIs, yeah, no, that lipstick's no. going to melt pretty quick, right? Yeah, I think for me, the big, the, it was, I think we hired some LEDs or a friend of mine got some LEDs on a job and, and it was the first time I used them and I just realised the, the potential of them. No one was getting hot and set the temperature to the flash and mm -hmm. yeah, it was, yeah, on a, on a geeky level, it was sort of a bit, bit mind-blowing that one and definitely changed the way I work. Yeah, yeah I um, bet. Today, I bet. So can, can we, I know we've talked about how the industry as a whole has changed. Can we talk about like how maybe still life has changed in the kind of like the past 10 years? It's a world that I know almost nothing about because I don't ever go down that route. And Greg doesn't really do a ton of it. So, so it'd be really interesting to hear kind of, obviously you said there's a big tidal shift with COVID, but kind of how was it changing before? Um... It's an interesting question, isn't it? I feel like everyone would have a different answer. Mm. Um, I don't have there think... been like specific trends and, and stuff like that, or yeah, definitely. I think uh, I think we're all sort of guilty of jumping on these trend bandwagons as well. Um, you know, I think it's important that you, you can adapt to to whatever is current at the time. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll segue to it, but like AI, like keep on top of that, but. Um, I don't, I don't think still life's changed. If anything, it sort of just keeps doing loops. It's like this cycle of sort of methods of shooting and styles. And I think at the moment, everything seems like it's going more down the abstract route, which is great for me. I, I love that side of things. But I think the, the biggest change is just the popularity. Right. I don't know whether that's just social media and my algorithms, but swear everybody's just still life photography these days photography as a whole just seems insanely popular right now well is it is it kind of like so i used to kind of speak to people and we you know we'd be at a dinner party and i'd say oh i'm a photographer and people would be like no way cool I, and they'd they'd either be like uh oh yeah my my sister-in-law or my bro or my brother-in-law he's a photographer and so you'd always meet people kind of like that but now it just seems that if I introduce myself as a photographer, people go, oh, yeah, Instagram, is it? Yeah. And it just seems that everyone now seems to be a photographer. Yeah. That, so even even though, because I think in the portrait world, grab a camera, take a picture of someone at low enough light, you know, to kind of low enough sun, and then boom, you're a, a beautiful sunset portrait photographer. 
but surely with still life there's like a higher level of technical skill you have to have space to have a setup surely there's more barriers to entry to the still life world then again this is from an ignorant portrait guy are there more kind of barriers to entry uh, i don't know i don't think i think covid again probably proved that there were so many projects shot over covid um you know at home projects um that proved that you didn't you don't need a studio you don't need sometimes you don't need lights mm-hmm. um to, to, to like any form of photography i guess you can shoot it anywhere you want as long as you've got the the ability to put together a nice composition and and know a bit about light. I think um, as 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 many constraints getting into still life as I think as any other sort of line of photography. I think the the barriers become when you've got to collaborate with other skills within the you know you've got to have the context. You've got to have you've got to know a good stylist. You've got to you know know a good assistant that can help you out. Good sort of DIT whatever it is that you need i think that's that's where the that's where the barriers come just like having that network behind you and that strong network of people right. who can come in when you do need that help mm-hmm. but i think from from a material and a technical point of view i don't think it's any different to, to like what you guys do at all right Interesting. Even i wouldn't know because i don't do what you guys do either so um, oh yeah don't tell anyone it's dead easy do you find that you kind of have a studio that's full of uh, i mean obviously you said you were minimalist but how do you not kind of end up just acquiring so many random bits of oh i would do that sites? jeez it would be yeah. so bad if i could if i could turn my camera i'd show you the storeroom which is full of shit it, it's a dream isn't it though you say it's full of shit but like me and greg would lose our minds right <laughs> it's hard it's to have like a disorganized person as well so keeping it organized but you, you'll have a client on set and be like, oh, if only we had some like glittery green ribbon just be like batch <laughs> would it take me a good half an hour to dig it out but it's there somewhere <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i guess that, that's that over the years like you just got to know what what to throw away what to keep but yeah hoarding is definitely yeah part of the job it's a real thing though isn't it i think photographers in general suffer from hoarding right i've i've actually so i was explaining i was out at the pub last night and i was explaining to people that what you cannot see in this office is that i take everything down when i do these recordings and i put everything on the floor so this week i have bought three of these old b3 kits and the floor is just full of just stuff and i think it's maybe just like a part of our psyche that actually hoarding is not the world's worst thing but i can't stand up currently because if i stand up <laughs> i am going to fall towards the door there is too much like, i'm not even i'm not even kidding i do it for the listeners but uh i feel like maybe you're slightly unprofessional towards you mitch so i'll wait <laughs> so listen we t- we talked a little bit um you mentioned the uh the ai elephant in the room uh earlier how so obviously photographers in general are very wary of it all uh i kind of feel that it's starting to get to a point where people are getting used to the idea of it and so it's there are products now being made available to us that are going to be making our life easier rather than 
taking or maybe not taking work i kind of feel like if it's going to take work it's going to take the real low-hanging fruit stuff stuff that actually maybe wasn't going to pay in the first place how do you kind of feel about how it might affect still life stuff because obviously it's probably easier for ai to recreate inanimate objects rather than hands and facial expressions at the same time it's never going to have that true creativity that obviously shines through in tons of your work yeah i think it's already apparent that some some parts of specifically some parts of still life are being affected like i think easy things like footwear and and, and soft goods um you know that that sort of stuff is like what you said the, the low-hanging fruits side of, of those bits of the, i think we're already seeing it it's mm-hmm. ai is doing it and fair enough um but the there are certain comforts i think you know obviously ai struggles with liquids and like you said like hair and skin and um hands so i think there's certain parts of, of sort of my job that i think are safe and others that i think we've just got to let go but at the same time it's there there's the tools are there for you to use if, if you're worried that, that it's if you're worried that it's taking your job then get on board like it's not it's not for me i've you told somebody that's dabbled in it and mm-hmm. i already think that i'm sat at a computer long enough and the few weeks that i tried it i just didn't leave this chair like, yeah, I'm not, into, I'm not into that. Somebody else can have that job. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm the same. When I was kind of dabbling with it, I've, I, I, I also run uh, kind of like a tech consultancy for the creative industries called Mainframed. Uh, but I, so I have to try and stay on top of all of this stuff. And for me, it's just like it's a bit soulless, isn't it? Mm. Like there just doesn't feel like there's anything there. And I, and I, you know, I feel like I'm quite good at spotting. AI stuff because it just feels a little bit flat. Feels a little bit dead. It doesn't mm. really feel like there's something. It feels like there's something missing. I think I'm you not- can get away with it more though in the still life world. If I mean, and I might be wrong there, but I've had I did a, a campaign recently that, that had a big still life element, and a lot of the stuff in the mood board that I was given was AI and created by AI because they had a concept and that was the best way of them illustrating it and. The thing is, for still life stuff, it it you know, it can almost look a bit more stylized, and you can get away with it a bit more, I think, with AI. Whereas maybe when it's kind of got people, that's when it really shows up to be a bit lifeless, you know, because it's just something that just doesn't feel right or authentic about it. But with objects, it maybe gets a bit a little bit blurred. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that. It's with still life in general, like without the AI, like if, if and maybe I'm guilty of it as well, when you over-retouch over or over-process your work, does it lose its, I don't know, like what that is, like the, the character of it, the rawness of it. And the obvious thing to say about AI is that it lacks character, it lacks that human sort of element. But mm-hmm. like you said, Greg, with still life, you know, it's, at the end of the day, it's just an object that that shoe could have been shot in a studio or, or with AI. Um, Maybe in the future it would all be about the name, like like, and the fact that it is shot, and that will be its selling point. And and the work is there for the very tippy top or the, the people with the highest amount of followers. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I think it's got a little way to go before it really starts putting a dent in in sort of still life in general. But it's it's coming, right? We're 
check your mirrors. Basically, yeah, it's it's here. Yeah. It's here. We get on board, basically. I think it's the the overall. Yeah. Much as though I'm sure it'll pain various people to hear that, it's kind of like yeah. But there's but there's loads of ways. Like you know, we we actually use AI quite a lot on the back end of the podcast. You know, so there's there's there are lots of ways that it can improve your life. Obviously, from the, from the art generation point of view, I'm not really a fan. But then from helping me kind of like automate and kind of really quite time-consuming dull tasks i find i find it useful for that yeah i, th- I think um i think specifically what you said greg about the art direction uh and and sort of scamping up projects like mm-hmm. an art director friend who's who's reliant on it but you know often he's making sort of mood boards that are gonna look better than than the final product <laughs> you're fabricating something exactly what you need and now the photographer's job is to match that and um mm. you've got to ask yourself the question like at what point do you just just let the ai do the heavy lifting but yeah um, there is yeah, an element of that sometimes when you have and i mean it started when i um, probably started before this but i really noticed it when when smartphones started to get good and you'd have an art director on set that might take a picture on their smartphone and then literally turn around and be like, well, that's it. That's the shot. <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, okay, well, you don't really need me here then. Well, I wonder whether or not there's an element of that with AI, as you said, that, that it's kind of like, well, actually, this is exactly, I've been able to dial it into the nth degree. And for the art director, I can see the appeal in creative directors who are using it because they're getting a lot more creative control perhaps than they had before, which must have been a bit frustrating for some of them where they could, you know, um, have a vision and a, and a concept and then get a photographer to kind of uh, implement that and it doesn't quite match what they had in their mind. Now, there's two ways of looking at it. One way is that could be really frustrating and another way is that actually the process of collaboration is what makes it so much more powerful because you're working with somebody who is going to add to it and generate something, you know, better than what you had in mind. That's when the best, you know, magic happens. But that in itself is probably quite, you know, rare on the grand scheme of things. In most collaborations, you're going to get something that might not quite meet one person's expectations or the other person's expectations. And AI kind of gives you the option to have complete control. So it could lead to a generation of maniacal, Creative directors. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Watch this space. <laughs> they didn't. Ha- they didn't have that in. Um, uh, oh God, I've forgotten the name. Um, Terminator. They Sorry. didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Not how Terminator ends. <laughs> anyway. So listen, Mitch. Right. So I'm on your website. I'm looking at your personal work. Let's talk about. Are you ha- are you happy to talk about personal work? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. What is it? Obviously, we totally understand. And <laughs> cool. hopefully, what the- are you no, thinking? No, oh, hang on. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. My God, that is that. Sorry. No. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. Right. Backtrack, guys. That's not at all how it. Oh, Jesus. Right. I'm not. I not meant that. That's not how I meant it to sound. Oh, Jesus Christ. In today's episode of Exposed Negative, Tom utterly insults the guest's personal work. No, the, the personal work is absolutely beautiful, right? So it's it's amazing. And I would just say, obviously, we understand as photographers, and hopefully everyone listening understands the importance of personal work. How much 
this is the question. How much are you able to shoot? I assume you're able to shoot a fair bit. How much do you kind of shoot a year and how driven are you by creating new work? Not what is it? I meant what is it that drives you to create more personal work? And that's that's what I was trying to say in my utterly ham fisted way. My God, I'm just gonna turn my mic and camera off. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? Probably not as much as much as I should do. I think it's it's important for any anyone to get as much personal stuff out of the way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mainly just to show sort of like what it is that you're you're thinking at the time creatively, like what what your current sort of flavour is. But mm-hmm. also I think I find it's important because when you do get a job in commercially or editorially, I find if I've not done some personal work for all, I try and steer that brief towards what it is that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like even the even the job that I've got on at the moment, it's a you know, eight page editorial and the idea is so close to something that I wanna do or, or personal that I haven't done. So what I'm finding myself doing is sort of trying to steer everyone in the whole project towards this idea. And mm-hmm. really what I should have done is just like got myself together and shot that, you know, scratch that itch and then now just treat this as a commercial job and, and, and be the yes man. But um, that's one thing, big benefit, I think, of shooting personal work. But, but then that's a form I, of collaboration, isn't it? So maybe don't do yourself down for that because actually you're then bringing something even better to the table because you've kind of got this kind of seed of an idea in the back of your head and you're, you're visually, kind of... Visually, yeah, I think it will be better. But commercially and what sells, and that, that's the thing about our job, I isn't see. it? Like, you know what looks better, but you've also got marketing and hmm. a lot of people that need to tick boxes as well. And, Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, yeah. that's what's paying the bills. So, yes, sure. I know what? that me and the art director know that it would look better, but I know the art director's under the cop because he's got to please marketing and it's that whole sphere. Yeah. What inspires you then is another way of looking at it. What kind of makes you want to create personal work? Do you find that you have fits and starts with it? Do you find you have creative highs and lows where you kind of have to then force yourself to start? thinking about doing personal work or is it something that just comes naturally and you want to create like are there periods where you're just like I, a lot a lot i'd say 80 percent of the time I'm, I'm not feeling too inspired um i seem to get inspired coming off the back of a holiday which i haven't mm-hmm. been on in a long time but for some reason the last few days of a holiday i'm always like right when i get back i'm gonna proper like grindstone and 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 also I know this is a real cliche and I don't do it that often, which is why I think um, it works for me, but just being at galleries, even just looking at mm. stuff that isn't relevant, um, it's such a cliche to say, but I always seem to like, come away from going, do you know what, I've got this, I've got this weird idea or I've got this like, urge to sort of contact this person who does something similar. And um, Other than that, no, I, I don't have any sort of obvious draws of inspiration like Pinterest or I don't follow any, don't follow many still life photographers on Instagram. That's, um, I think that's a healthy thing to to not be doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you if you had to give like one tip to somebody starting in still life, like because whenever I work with still life photographers or or have worked with kind of really good um, prop stylists, you know, and they've they've come along and they're going, oh yeah, you um, if you're shooting this, this is how you you need to use this particular 
type of tape or you need to spray the product with this type of thing, you know, to give it a certain look or to make it work a certain way. Are there any kind of um, bizarre things that you've picked up over the years, perhaps, that you've gone, I never thought that would work, but actually that's a really interesting way of doing it? I'm putting you on the spot here, but like you always hear this about people who photograph food, for example, and and using certain things to kind of enhance the way it looks. I only think I I sort of find those things when shooting food and drink. Um, I think food and and drinks styling is something that everyone thinks is easy. Um, But when you've worked... Creating life in liquid and stuff can be quite interesting, can't it? Getting light into liquid and into bottles and... Yeah, that sort of stuff is, I guess, just like shooting a watch or a car. You know, it's, there's working with glass is particularly hard, especially cylindrical glass. Like, um, but the food tricks and and the drinks tricks that that the stylists use are, are ones that just come with experience. And and you know, I feel like, yeah, I've, I've sort of had my mind blown by just someone putting sugar in a bit of champagne and it brings it back to life, or mm. one up a chicken's ass, or it's just all these weird, like... <laughs> anyway, less about the, less about the personal project. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> I'm going to cycle this back to the sheep at the beginning of the episode that you talked about. There's a strange farmyard animal thing going on here. <laughs> yeah, no, but not, not too many, um, not too many tricks that, I'd, that I can really um, call it my own. But yeah, good thanks to stylists. Is there anything you've ended up using which is kind of like a, I don't know, that you've gone, I'm going to, I don't know, use? Because that's the thing. You can kind of end up with a set that's very large and you've got all of these lights going on. Then it turns out you end up using the torch on your phone or something just to light a little bit. You you kind of find that it almost can be MacGyvering situations. As you said, with your light stick, your light wand, you know, things like that. Is there anything else that you've kind of done over recently that you've kind of somebody on set's gone? Oh. Um, other than like cheeky Photoshop tricks, certain stuff like I've, I've gotten big into using different types of layers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Really exploring. Blending modes and stuff. Yeah. I think a lot of, um, when I figured out how to use those, that sort of changed the way I use Photoshop. Um, All right. things up a lot and it also gave me the ability to just very quickly do something and show clients on set so yeah it's not getting in camera granted but that's a good tip though two images and, and just blend these things together and bosh like you can see it so yeah other than blending that, modes okay yeah no, no no real um no real fancy tricks like that when it comes to retouching and stuff, do you lose many like luminosity masks and things like that, or is it kind of like you hand paint, or how do you kind of choose to do it? No, I try and I try and steer away from doing anything by by hand. Really, it's um yeah, I do it again like a lot of layers. Um, I've actually recently shot a fair bit of fashiony sort of stuff and and taught myself how to do skin, mm-hmm. um, and and other bits and. That's actually fed into my sort of still life retouching as well. Okay. Um, the so frequency layering and, and frequency separation. It, that blew my mind. It's cool, yeah, isn't it? I, yeah, amazing. Like it's it's not that handy. Um, 
I actually used it in a car retouch not long ago, which I would never have thought worked, but mm-hmm. just insane once I got my head around how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of that. For anyone who doesn't know what frequency separation is when it comes to retouching, it basically separates out the uh, texture from the main tonal value. So you're able to isolate the the texture effectively of things like skin and car paint and things like that. And so you, you affect the tone and the texture on two separate layers. So you're able to get rid of like really small dust hairs all that sort of stuff, as well as make quite swathing changes. It's ultra powerful. But yeah, you're right. Sometimes it's not necessary or sometimes it's a bit overkill. I use it quite a lot because it's, um, for, for me, I just, I love being able to have the full control and it's pretty accurate when it comes to kind of removing uh, kind of, you know, reflections in windows and stuff like that. It's Yeah, it's crazy where it, I never thought it would work on certain things, like even taking the dust out off of... Um, areas with lots of texture you can you know rather than use the patch tool or the dust and scratches you, you can use that and it just it's, it's a little bit lengthy but once you've got all your actions set up it's yeah it's, it's definitely sped things up for me yeah brilliant. do you think that's i mean this i wanted to we'll probably wrap it up soon but i guess as a final question on that front in the what's the biggest change you've seen in kind of um the last 15 years has it been the retouching side of things improving and getting more powerful has it been the camera camera sensors getting bigger and giving you bigger files to work with has it been the constant lighting perhaps coming in and and changing the way that you work or has it been the kind of cheaper cheaper lighting technical level yeah equipment leds Mm. um that's big game yeah, changer. Yeah, for me, for sure. I mean, the, the the price point of those as well, and 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 now that the power's coming up, and you can actually, uh, I've always used like old sort of digital backs where the ISO is not great. So for me, using blonde heads like two K blonde heads still didn't really cut it. Mm-hmm. And now mm. you know, you, even just this this light here that we spoke about earlier on, like power that can push out. And as cameras, ISOs comes up, I don't know, it always seems to sort of be getting, um, you can you can work a lot darker and a lot sort of quicker and cooler and, and cheaper, I guess. So, yeah, mm-hmm. the text, text change is massive, isn't it? But I'm, I'm probably the wrong person to talk to about that because I'm, my kit level is pretty low-key. Um, which sounds bizarre to, to when you see your work and obviously like the, the level of what you produce and how clean and precise and everything it is it's uh yeah, it feels hard yeah, to believe but um smoke and mirrors smoke and mirrors <laughs> <laughs> so my way, it's the opposite so when you look at my website you go oh, i probably use one light and then there's me with 25 <laughs> flashes <laughs> you just yeah. bought three packs what are you gonna be doing those? i don't know blowing them up if it's uh if it's anything to do with my current track record I was up up a mountain in Austria the other week, and I managed to blow two things up. So that went well. If if you're listening from my regular hire houses, uh, they were just bad packs. Obviously, I'm definitely not doing anything that would be blowing them up on purpose. What are you doing with them? I don't know. Just dodgy electrics in a in a ski chalet. I think is what I'm definitely going with. Yeah, but listen on that literal bombshell uh let's um start wrapping this up so obviously you've been briefed you know at the end of every episode we strand our guest 
on a generic uh, island that may or may not be deserted. And uh, for legal reasons, we cannot <laughs> say the name. The theme tune. Exactly. Uh, but what we would uh, say is, do you have, if you were to be uh, marooned somewhere, do you have a camera that you would take with you? Uh, what would you? Don't what give would him the option f- of saying, "Would you take one?" Because oh, he says yes. no. That's the story. You have Imagine to take that, a camera. What's your desire? Now, ta- now it's time to swap careers. I have, yeah, I would have took the opportunity to have left it at home. But um, <laughs> do you know what? It's a funny one because I've I've got a I've got a, quite a um, quite hatred for cameras. I, I don't think I've ever found the camera for me. I, I, really? I've, I've, had a, I've had a Nikon D eight hundred ever since. Ever since I've started taking pictures, I guess mm-hmm. still I've still got it. I've left it in the in a field for days after a party. I've dropped it numerous times. I've I've had it stolen. I've lost it. Like it's still there. It's still going. Um, absolute workhorse. Same batteries. <laughs> <laughs> but then the, the the digital backs I've I've sort of not got on with because I think they're. Um, I, it was just the cost of maintaining them. Like they obviously they were amazing. The Phase P65 was an amazing camera, but mm-hmm. I just needed to have it serviced a lot, which cost a lot of money. Then went to the Fuji, which seems to have a similar problem, and now I'm almost back to Nikon. So, um, short answer is I, I just don't, I just don't like cameras. It's <laughs> fair. New cameras don't get on. I, I, like I went. I went. I went through uh, a lot of system swaps and to finally start, I ended up where I started. So I went Canon and then went through about five or six different brands and then ended up at the Canon. And now I'm finally happy. But I totally feel when you say that, I'm like, yeah, I get that. I can really, that really resonates with me. <laughs> I think there's, there's no camera that does just the bits that you want and doesn't come with all of the fat. I think with it's, it's you know, capture one for me is is the camera, and then the camera over there is just the the sort of thing that the information it's a, comes it's from. The cap the capture device, right? Yeah, and, and okay. even though the, the GFX is is what I've got at the moment, the hundred is an amazing camera. Don't get me wrong; it's just it's unreliable. It's fiddly. It's um, the lenses are cheap. I don't know. It's I, some people rave about it. Some people dislike it. And now You've got a favourite lens. Um, I, I've, I've, I always try and shoot on eighty-five primes. There was an old, what's the brand? The, the brand that sort of do the, I won't say the term knockoff, but um, Samyang. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. You heard of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is going back now. I had a Samyang eighty-five on my, my Nikon, and I do recall it being super crispy and whatever all the, the weird metaphors people use for a lens but I think um, I'm so reliant on sort of capture now that it, it's all regardless what the lens is just make sure you're shooting at the sweet spot on the right F number and helicon focus stuff and use the right settings in capture I think all lenses amount to the same for me it is an interesting time for lens lenses and lens manufacturers because there's a lot of kind of cheaper uh, lens copies coming out of Asia, which 
uh, are from kind of small batch factories and what have you, and they are replicating older classic lenses and what have you. So there's a there's almost like this cottage industry now in making manual focus lenses, which wasn't around 20, 30 years ago, um, which could could be quite interesting, I guess. And it's, it's kind of been an interesting sign as far as I'm concerned of people almost um, pushing back against the whole kind of digital perfection that we can find, you know, everyone was obsessed with sharpness and pixel peeping and now people are kind of just looking for anything that gives their digital camera a bit of character. You're a bit like those, well, those lens baby things. I've, I've never used one, but always been intrigued what they are. It's sort of mm. more, is it like a tilt shift type effect? Or? Yeah, but basically. It's, it's basically like a way of free lensing because obviously you then have the, the two lens elements become separate and they're still connected. So you basically are free lensing, but without having to obviously disconnect the lens from the body. Sort of mm. like one of those novelty wobbly eyes sort of things. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> like that. Basically, that's how they pitched it in the sales meeting. Guys, I've got this great idea for a new lens. I would, you, know those, you know those wobbly eyes? <laughs> I would love it, Mitch, if you turned up to a shoot and then took the lens cap off your camera and this goggly eye just came out and stopped springing back and forth. And you're like, no, 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 it's, it's meant to do that. It's fine. Pushing the envelope. <laughs> okay, so, what's your Desert Island book? Oh, I'm going to have to make a really, really embarrassing... Um, I'm going to have to admit, I've never really read... You can't read. In my, in my oh, I thought life. you were going to say the, like, the Spice Girls Annual 97 or something like that. I've tried reading so many books. Like, if you... If you, if you it's uh, a picture book, Mitch. It's a picture book. There's not many words. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I'm trying to read Anthony Bourdain at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm okay, but a photography book. If you, if you had to pick a photographer's a book of good images is there anything that you first picked up years ago perhaps that got you into photography or you know i've read um the susan sontag but i feel like that's like you know at, at school you had to read of mice and men um, yeah I think at uni <laughs> susan sontag on photography is kind of like that for us right <laughs> right so uh, yeah i'm gonna have to say that because it's probably one of the only ones i have read um <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, mean, literacy is not my it's not my thing. I've given you terrible answers to these questions, but I wasn't briefed. Tell me where was the brief? So hang on, so hang on, Greg. Did you not brief Mitch about this? Greg, it's you. Uh, I think we. Right. Okay. Well, that's okay. Apparently, I'm just kicking kit. Right. That's yeah. Apologies. But I think I, I think they were I think they were good answers. So we got <laughs> yeah. Dear hundred and Susan Sontag on photography. I'm just going to put a goggly lens so and. And, and a goggly lens. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us. Uh, tell me. tell the uh, the audience, where, where can they find you? I mean, we've mentioned it multiple times, so if they haven't looked it up, but where can they find you online? You know What's what? the best I'm, way? I'm really lucky, and, and maybe it shows my age, but I got that Mitch Payne handle on everything, uh, pretty much. Mitch Payne, well on Twitter, Mitch Payne on Instagram. and um, Yeah, I'm not on TikTok yet. You don't want to do dancing on TikTok? Uh, I'm tempted. Maybe that's the new. Uh, maybe that's the new direction <laughs> I'll take. But yeah, this, well, I'm mainly just on Instagram. So if anyone wants to chat on there, then let me know. Perfect. Amazing. Well, listen. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for listening to the latest episode of the Exposed Negative podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by heading to our Patreon or doing one-offs. Uh, the details are on the website and the Patreon is patreon.com forward slash exposed negative. We'd love it if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash at exposed negative. And obviously we're on Instagram, which is X negative. If you want to follow us personally, mine is tombarnes.com on Instagram as as and the website <laughs> and then greg's is at greg fennell and that's f-u-n-n-e-l-l so uh yeah thank you very much for taking the time to listen and uh, hopefully you enjoy the next one